There's many aspects to my friend Charles Lipson's career and life. He's a wit. He's a literary man. He's a man of letters. He's Professor Emeritus of the University of Chicago, the Peter B. Ritzman Chair. He's also a writer and thinker of deep thoughts that are important to think, like how do we save the republic? How, do, how can we save the republic as our political leaders produce, I don't know, idiocy? This is the best way to say it. Because, why, why is he like this? Because he's a teacher. Because at bottom, Charles Lipson is a teacher. He likes to teach young people. And I never had him as a teacher, but he's a friend of mine, and I just imagine what he'd have been like. And these sessions that we have together with him on the Chicago Way, it reminds me of what it was like when you could talk to your professors and differ with them and discuss them, discuss things with them. We are on the Chicago Way podcast on WGN+. So this is a guy who lives high on the hog and he has this Tammany Hall-style attitude to power. And um, it is, it's the Chicago Way, absolutely. Look, the, the Chicago Way is a deep cultural phenomenon. It's the Chicago Way. The Chicago Way. That's the focus. In a tower by the river, there lived a man. There was a man who took a stand with pen and paper in his hand, defeating foes in every ward with a pen more mighty than the sword. No escape from his ink lasso in a tower by the river. Castle. Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. I've got two questions. These come from my wife. First, what about Trump and will Chicago survive Brandon Johnson? And I'm I'm wondering, I don't think Chicago will survive Brandon Johnson. And as far as Trump's concerned, well, we have Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of the Peter B. Ritzma Chair at the University of Chicago, to talk about things, all things cultural. But I just don't see it happening. I don't see, I see Trump being swept in in some sort of social media vacuum that he even can't swim against, forced to run a campaign at the behest of the Democrats. Because they don't want to face Ron DeSantis. That's my view. Uh, what are your views, gentlemen? Can Chicago survive? I don't think so. And can uh, Trump avoid being sucked into the maelstrom? Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Well, let's go. Let's go to Charles because you're the guest, Charles, and I'm John Cast. Jeff Carlin, my friend and co-host, is with us all as always. This is the Chicago Way podcast. But friend Charles Lipson, is Trump capable of avoiding the maelstrom that the Democrats have set up for him to suck him in to running against uh, 
Ron DeSantis and thereby tubing the Republican ticket. What say you, Charles Lipson? Trump doesn't want to avoid that maelstrom. That's that's uh, that's what he hopes will help sweep him uh, to victory in uh, the Republican primary. He seems to have about 35, perhaps a little more, percentage of the Republican primary vote. But unless um, the other candidates consolidate or there is what's called ranked choice voting, uh, which is the same as an instant runoff, uh, Trump could easily win. I do not think he can win a general election, even against a po- an opponent as weak as Biden, because I just don't think educated, higher income, suburban voters, a lot of women voters, I just don't think any of them are going to vote for Trump. I think a lot of people were deeply troubled by his behavior um, after the 2020 election, which has never really stopped. And I think that he's running on a platform of revenge and payback. Uh, And we know from a lot of studies that what voters want is forward-looking solutions to problems that they know they're facing. Well, well, you know, I guess I better pour a drink and just wait because... (laughs) Well, that's always a good solution, John. That's always. Yeah, I think because I just don't see, I don't see the, uh, the, uh, Bushites or all the Nikki Haley's and all the others trying to get, wanting to give up because they see, they see Trump in here. Maybe it'll give them a leg up and give, give them an advantage. I just see chaos. You know, chaos is Trump's bird. It shows up wherever he's wherever he goes, but uh, I don't know, Jeff. Jeff, what do you say? I mean, I say it's it's been at least good for fundraising for him. I mean, some of the reports are Trump was making them pulling in a million and a half a day, just putting out email blasts attached to this this uh, indictment. So, I it sounds like it's going to be just like you said, chaos, absolute chaos. Um, I don't think he can, I don't know. I don't, I don't think he can win outright because the margins are so thin, but I wouldn't put anything past him because he's just, you know, he's a master manipulator when it comes to language and getting people riled up. That's, it mm. used to be said that you had to raise the money from big donors, mm-hmm. uh, but Trump has been pretty successful in raising it from small donors. Um, and that's important because that means that it's not a situation where uh, 10 people can sit down in a room or on a Zoom call and say, we don't think candidate X or Y can win. Why don't we all consolidate behind candidate Z? And that's uh, that uh, that won't that may drive out a candidate like Nikki Haley or Tim Scott or uh, someone else, whoever that might be. If they can't raise money from small uh, from small donors, but it will not drive out uh, Trump. What could drive him out are uh, far better indictments than the lousy one that uh, that Alvin Bragg uh, just generated last week. That's why I want him in a way because this this indictment is so ter- terrible, terrible that I I want him. To get a measure of a scalp, I want him to at least hold one scalp when he goes down. 
I want him to scream and hold one scalp because Bragg has to pay. And the people that put Bragg in office, George Soros, has to pay. And uh, now, now that's becoming quite the thing, you know, where everyone's screaming anti-Semitism left and right. Well, you go, were attacked for that, John. Wrongly attacked. Wrongly attacked for that when you were among the first people to really call out the malevolent activity uh, that George Soros was uh, conducting around the country. And what we've seen is time after time after time, these prosecutors have just uh, created very unsafe conditions uh, for their cities. And there's no payment. They don't have to pay. I mean, the guy in San Francisco, I guess he was removed, right? Wasn't he? Right, the, right. The one, He's a the one who was raised boy. by wolves. <laughs> raised right. by wolves in Hyde Park, right near the University of Chicago. Right. Tom right. Ayers, right? And Tom Ayers is the grandson. Yeah. And those guys were a machine. You know, Tom Ayers, uh, one of the things that really helped them was that Tom Ayers, who headed the big, the, uh, the state's big electrical system was very close to the elder Mayor Daly, but that's all inside uh, politics. But I've got to say uh, that the situation uh, with uh, with rogue prosecutors is is really uh, terrible. Uh, we've had um, we've had it in city after city. We have it in 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 Chicago's County, Cook County with Kim Fox. They have it in St. Louis. They have it in LA. They have it in, they had to replace the guy in San Francisco. But city after city of Philadelphia has a particularly bad one, Larry Krasner. So there, uh, it, it's not a, it's not a one size fits all. It's one size misfits everything. Jeez, does it. Charles, speak to that a little. What, what, what did you find so appalling in the, in the Bragg situation uh, and the case that was brought against Trump? I mean, from a legal perspective, what do you see there? Well, I, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't play one on podcasts, <laughs> but uh, there are several things. Basically, the first thing is everything starts with, with Bragg saying that Trump um, mislabeled his pay. It's not illegal to make a payment uh, uh, to a porn star. We've all done it. <laughs> There's a form for it, I'm sure. No, it's he made, that payment. He made it from the Trump organization, which he wholly owns. So he didn't, he didn't put it on the books of some public company and misrepresent it. Uh, right. Even if it had been a, a misrepresentation, the statute of limitations has run on it. It's a misdemeanor. Bragg wants to escalate it all to a felony. How does he do that? He does it uh, by trying to connect it to another crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the other crime? He won't tell us. <laughs> he won't tell us what's the other crime. It's behind door number three right. or maybe door number two. That's the best part. He just he describes it. He's like, well, it's bigger than a bread box, has a little frill on it. Like You might recognize it in some states known as like it's just he tagged yeah. in such a, a beautiful way. And you're like, oh, just say it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so th- that's the beginning right. of the problem. But the, it doesn't end there. Um, the 
he he gended up before uh, a uh, uh, sort of hand-picked uh, grand jury. All of them are. The classic statement is you could indict uh, a ham sandwich. Uh, yes. But uh, the, the fact is a ham sandwich was probably more guilty in this case. And I'm not a Trump fan. I'm, you know, I, I, I find, and, and uh, the fact is, uh, it, it's really a miscarriage of justice um, by this man who was elected just like Kim Fox, just like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, just like uh, Tressa Borden in San Francisco and all the all the rest, the guy in in L.A. who's just as bad. They're, they've all been uh, elected. Now, the governor of New York could remove Bragg. But there's not a chance that she will, in not only because she probably agrees with him, but because it's impossible for a, a Democratic elected official to take a controversial action against an African-American politician since Democrats can't win without a strong uh, turnout and uniform vote by African-Americans who vote Democratic in overwhelming numbers. So... Uh, uh, so they're in, uh, they're kind of in a box there, but I want to say one more thing, which I think is the, the worst part of Bragg's indictment, the whole system of justice depends upon beginning with a crime and then finding out what, who, who perpetrated it and whether they should be charged. It never is supposed to begin with a person and then look to find a crime. And that's who is that fellow? Hmm? Who is that fellow who said, I have found you the man and this is the crime? It was Stalin. It was Stalin. (laughs) Or maybe it was Beria, the head of his police. Uh, but but that's the way that those systems work uh they could point to jeff they could point to john they could point to charles and then start looking for any kind of crime that we might have committed the whole system is not supposed to work that way but when liberal when liberal democrats who once who in my lifetime prided themselves on tolerance and uh justice and social justice when they begin to act like Beria and say i've given you the this is the man now we'll find the crime i need to find the crime because to fit the man what happens we're not just saying that bragg ran on that campaign and so did the attorney general uh, of new york state uh, letitia james they ran on that platform we will get Trump. Yeah, and Charles, I would suppose any of this prosecution goes through. You know, how does this play out in a sense in the actual election? I mean, what happens? How does a president run? You know, have to be in court and then be campaigning and not talk about either one? I mean, I think it's a big problem in multiple ways, and not just for Trump. Certainly not just for this indictment. I think that the uh, this this thing could be thrown out. Uh, at some point along the way, it is likely to be if there's a serious review by higher courts. But I think that 
he's got real legal jeopardy in Florida. He's got real legal jeopardy in Georgia. I think that the strongest and in a way the easiest case is not that he uh, had the documents in Mar-a-Lago, but that he formally declared that he had returned all of those documents, and he had not. That's what the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago revealed. They, they turned up all these documents, and he said he had returned them all. Uh, the formal charge for that is obstruction of justice, and uh, that's kind of the meat and potatoes uh, prosecution for uh, the Department of Justice. Um, but uh, it's a shame to see so much of our elections tied up yeah. in, in these legal matters. But let me tell you, Joe Biden is not home free either because uh, uh, there should have been a special prosecutor uh, for Hunter. Uh, there has not been, but they have left the old prosecutor in place in Delaware who was appointed by Donald Trump. And, um, and we need to hear one way or another whether there's going to be an indictment. The indictment of the son would not normally uh, involve the father or the cousins or the brothers and the uncles or whatever. But in this case, it does because it was a family enterprise. They were all, at the very least, we know that they were trading on Joe Biden's name and his public office. That's not illegal, but... It could be that they've uh, turned up some elements of Joe Biden participating in that. As far as I know, he's not been called before a grand jury, but there have been allegations that he was a direct partner in a number of these enterprises. And if they don't uh, ask for uh, uh, his testimony uh, in that case, they should at least... Uh, get very clear testimony one way or the other about his participation. So we're going to have legal issues <laughs> hanging over this whole campaign. Wow. A, a ripe time for history. Jeez. We've never had in our country had similar problems, but not problems quite like these. And when you have the institutions in peril and the public's understanding of right and wrong of things in peril, and the Department of Justice being treated like a political football. I remember under Nixon when it was considered the worst thing in the world, and now it's just part of the game. Uh, what happens to the republic? Because that's my greatest concern. Not Trump, not uh, Biden, not Biden's politics, not Hunter's ridiculous art projects. Hmm. And he can sell $500,000 worth of finger paints to Chinese <laughs> operatives and then everyone's happy. But what, what about our republic? I think that that's the important message. Uh, I, I've just been writing about um, this kind of tit-for-tat that's going on with yeah. the Bragg indictment, which we just talked about. And the Tennessee legislature booting out some representatives who clearly violated all the rules. You can't go into the well of the house with a bullhorn uh, and just obstruct all business. But the question is whether whether, uh, the punishment was adequate. Since then, we've had 
uh, uh, jury, uh, 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 sort of forum shopping, it's called, where somebody yeah. who wa- wanted to uh, make illegal uh, the over-the-counter, that what's so-called day-after pill uh, for yeah. terminating pregnancies, found one judge uh, who was willing uh, to overturn a pill that had been on the market for something like two decades. And since then, we've had representatives, elected representatives, saying this should just be ignored. It, it It's a bad decision, in my opinion, but it should never be ignored. This is a legal decision by a federal judge. It needs to be overturned uh, by uh, an appellate court. Um, uh, and that can be done quickly and should be done quickly, in my opinion. But what you're seeing here is a kind is a kind of uh, body blow after body blow uh, to the republic we love. Um, I wrote a piece that that focused on Tennessee and Bragg because the story about the day after pill hadn't come out yet. And I end by by saying that the deeper message is that preserving our democracy requires prudence, good judgment, and some self-restraint by elected leaders and judges. Those qualities are endangered. They're being killed by the bitter politics of payback and revenge. They're all cloaked in self-righteous contempt for all of our opponents. And I conclude by saying, the tide of vitriol is rising. That's another swamp that needs draining. Nerve-wracking. I mean, my wife and I had this, just came back from a little road trip to the mm-hmm. central part of Illinois and you know, had mm-hmm. conversations similar similar to this, just in mm-hmm. discussion about what we were seeing and what we were experiencing along the way. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's you, We're going to see it in, in, a, in a microcosm here in Chicago with the, the election of Brandon Johnson, I feel like, because it, here's somebody who I feel like is going to have, like they have, you know, uh, an open check to do whatever they want to change, alter the future of the city, or change the way the city's run currently. Even though an abysmal amount, number of people voted, and it was a very small turnout from that. Um, it's going to be really crazy to see what happens here as our prosecutors continue their their path. What do you see, Charles, in the next? four years that big big decisions might be had to made by the next administration under Johnson. I just think that uh, Johnson uh, will test the limits mm-hmm. of what uh, what uh, you can do to a city and have that city survive. I think the first question, and John would have a much better sense of this than I do, is whether Brandon Johnson will have control of the city council. He what he wants to do is jack up taxes in a massive way. We know what will happen when you do that. Uh, people will leave the city. New businesses won't start. People won't hire other people. Uh, we already know that that's happened in New York, in Connecticut, in uh, California, and uh, you can do it in the short run, but uh, uh, you pay a very heavy price. We know that he uh, that he not only doesn't want uh, to hire more police, but the police who are already uh, there won't feel like they have any political backing when they really 
need it. And uh, why should they get out of their car? Why should they get out of their car? I tell them all the time, never don't get out of their car, especially the young ones. Yeah. Stay in your car. I'll tell your father. I said, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it. It, it, it's, uh, so I, I see, and then we know that he'll do a giveaway contract to the teachers union because virtually all, and I don't mean, uh, uh, sort of 35 or 40%. I mean, over 95% of his donations came from the teachers union and other affiliated unions, far left progressive unions. So he's going to, He's going to give uh, the teachers the contract they want, and he's going to try to yeah. prevent any charter schools and close down what's there. I, I, I see uh, when I when I talk to friends who are progressive, I ask them a question that I haven't heard a good answer, which is, can you name a well-governed progressive city, a city <laughs> that has a, a very progressive uh, mayor and the like, that's doing a really good job. You might, I can think of a couple that, that are growing very rapidly. Uh, Austin, Texas is one example and it's quite liberal and you might say that it's, it's doing fine, but there are not many. And, uh, my own sense, um, is that this kind of politics, first of all, Brandon Johnson won in part, because Paul Vallis was a very weak uh, opponent. Um, he had a great resume, but when you looked at each job, he hadn't accomplished a lot, and you could see his ineffectiveness as an administrator by the kind of campaign he ran. Well, he, he, was, he was hobbled because he had the big disadvantage. He was Which white. Is, well, he was white. that... And yeah. then that translated in the in the political text. That translated, if you were white, that translated into you're DeSantis or Trump Republican, you're MAGA, you're therefore suspect, you're morally suspect. And the media played along with this and reinforced these things. Yeah. And Mr. Johnson benefited. And so, what did he benefit? Well, I do think that racial mobilization politics, I do think that racial mobilization politics helped him. But I I don't think, I I think, for example, after he was the leading candidate in the first, in in the first election, he should have immediately built on that, gone on the air, worked hard. He didn't have, he didn't do that. He didn't have a good ground game. Of course, the ground game of Brandon Johnson was really union workers. Right. Yeah, teachers you. And and I got to tell you on the south side those those posters were everywhere. Just everywhere. And uh you could just tell that he was he was uh he had a lot of organized backing. Uh so yeah, I mean uh it, um but I think the question is now can he govern the city and, and um the answer is <laughs> Lori Lightfoot couldn't, and I have no reason to think that this guy can. Lori Lightfoot had a lot more experience uh, in life than Brandon Johnson has, and she couldn't handle it. She caved to uh, Tony Preckwinkle and Kim Fox. And now now we have uh, Brandon Johnson 
who's there to protect Tony Preckwinkle and Kim Fox, they will, he will not call them to account for the politics of permissiveness and lack of prosecutions. He's not going to do it. What do you think, uh, and, and Jeff too, what do you think turns this around in cities like Chicago? I think that we go through a period of at least two generations of complete craving, cratering. And then, then slowly it begins to change, if it ever does. Otherwise, it becomes worse than Detroit ever was. I mean, that's what, that's what, that's what you have to deal with. And unfortunately, the media, which cratered uh, to George Soros and his buddies in the issues that involved me uh, in Chicago, will uh, crater again. And it's not good. It's not pretty for the city of Chicago. Look, we're going to have violent. We're going to have violent crime. I'm working on something too. It's the temperature's rising. As the temperature rises, the violent crime increases. The bodies hit the floor. The mothers cry. They build their makeshift makeshift uh, you know shrines about the dead youths, and and uh, and it won't stop. It won't stop because there won't be prosecutors to do the job. Nobody wants to do. Nobody wants to be called a racist. White media people don't want to be called racist, mega Republicans. How dare you? And they've ceded the field to WBEZ, to the Tribune Guild, to all the lefties who tell stories about themselves. And uh, one story they don't want to tell is that they're tough on crime. Well, that's right. And I think that that's that the only way that turns around there, the only way that turns around is when you have a black middle class that says right. we've had enough. Our neighborhoods are dangerous and our schools are so lousy that we need some place to send our kids. And it's sorting out at the national level as people move they're leaving. Uh, they're leaving these progressive uh, uh, states, and they're going elsewhere. And you can see it in downtown Detroit. People tell me you can see it in downtown uh, Manhattan and so forth, where stores are now vacant. Part of that is Amazon, but but they just haven't come back uh, right. from. Uh, and by the way, uh, there's no guarantee that this won't get worse with a recession, yes. which could be uh, uh, on the horizon. There's no guarantee. Yeah. No, no one knows this recession has been like the horizon. It keeps receding uh, <laughs> the into the future. But but if there I'm is... I'm starting to get uh, depressed. I'm getting so depressed I might have to move to northwest Indiana. Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> they, I, I do think that we're we're facing... One other thing that I think sort of is an overarching issue in our polity, and that is it's become much more ideological. It's become ideological, and as it has become ideological, people see uh, um, their political opponents not as the loyal opposition but as contemptible 
Mm-hmm. And uh, you just can't run a democracy uh, no. without that kind of tolerance. And we've and that really began on university campuses. This they, they shut down speech. Why do you shut down speech? Because that speech does not deserve to be heard. Not the the traditional liberal view, which is that uh, you just debate that that person. But we right. see it on campus after campus. What do you see? the university administrators doing. They cave. Why do they cave? Because they're administrators, and where's the risk to them? The risk to them is that if they act in a serious way, they'll be booted out. Their their job is much more at risk. Uh, if you're, uh, and we're going to see a test of this at Stanford, right? Stanford yeah. uh, sh- shut down a federal judge. And uh, the students in the law school st- shut right. down a federal judge. And then uh, the uh, participating in that was a university administrator who should have been a voice of reason as a sort of an adult in the room. Mind you, the, the students in the room are as old as... Uh, as the Marquis de Lafayette and so forth, when he was George Washington's assistant in the war, these are not children; they're full adults. But but the university administrator came in there and basically said that the students were right and that uh, a federal judge should understand their position. Um, she's uh, on, on leave of some sort. Well, I don't know whether it's paid or not, but. The dean is now trying to say, well, this was a bad thing, and and it should never have happened. But none of the students have been punished. None of the students, have uh, their their, uh, names, uh, I suggested that their names be disclosed to all law firms um, uh, that would seek to hire them, that this is a person who shut down the speech of a A federal federal judge. judge. Wow. And, but nothing has happened to those students. And let me tell you, when nothing happens, when you, when you walk in a Walgreens and and start stealing everything and nothing happens to you, you're going to walk into a CVS and do it. Well, there's one other advantage to having Charles Lipson here with us. (laughs) And that is what he just said. The kind of thing that he just posed the problems facing the Republic that he just offered us to to examine. And I I have another that I'd like Charles to consider and you Jeff too. We asked early on, or just a few minutes ago with in terms of crime and the uh, epidemic of crime and the, the the, uh, reluctance of the Cook County Democrats to uh, pursue crime and pursue challenges to crime i keep thinking and you say what 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 will change is there anything that will change i keep thinking that when the republic as you said when the when the middle class when the black middle class uh has no more atlantis to send their kids and they can't go anywhere they get and they get mad someday among them will come another malcolm x and that's the to me that's the only saving thing that could happen. It would be terrible and it would be difficult and there would be people hurt on all sides for a revolutionary figure like that to emerge. But 
I think somebody like Malcolm X is needed. And the, and the times, the history keeps spill, spitting out people that we need at the time we need it. And do you think, do you see a possibility there, Charles, or do you think that it's really a danger to even think that way? Well, I think there's a possibility, and I think it's dangerous. That is, I, I, I think that the problem with these kind of mass movements is that there are no boundaries to them. We saw, we saw that time and time again with uh, populist movements. In, in the South, those populist movements began in the 1890s or so uh, by trying to organize both the blacks and white poor farmers in, in a biracial coalition. When that failed to win, the people who led that, and the key person was a guy named Tom Watson, they became really rabid racist uh, to mobilize their population. Uh, and that's a tradition that went all the way through to George Wallace, right? Um, we, we, we see racial mobilization politics behind the, in the last uh, election uh, in Chicago. But we also see it on college campuses. We see, um, and John, you and I have talked a lot about this. Jeff, you've been uh, part of these discussions, but they've been very important in John's life because the issue of him being a Greek American, me being a Jewish American and so forth, the question ha uh, is how did those ethnic markers or religious markers relate to our sense that we're a hundred percent American. Not to depreciate those. I mean, you know, John is a Greek American and he's proud of his heritage. Um, when my father died and uh, some years ago and I had to talk to uh, a visiting rabbi because our little synagogue had shut down, there weren't enough people left. Uh, in mm. rural Mississippi. And I said, you have to understand, my dad was 100% Jewish and proud of being Jewish, but he was 100% American and proud mm -hmm. of being an American. And he saw no contradiction between the two. He, the, the most important thing, the most important picture I ever saw that my dad took was a picture of the bottom of the Golden Gate Bridge. And I said, why'd you take it, Dad? He said, because I was on a troop ship going out uh, to fight in the Pacific in World War II, and I never knew if I would see America again. And that was the last thing I, I saw was the bottom of the Golden Gate Bridge. And I remember that, and I think that we've lost something in our uh, universities and so forth. It's nothing wrong at all with teaching people to be proud that they're African-American or Greek-American or Jewish-American or whatever. But it has to be in the overall context that we're a United States of America. And sometimes I wonder if we, I actually, I don't wonder. I think how we've let our fathers and grandfathers down with all this the talk of politics and and the exclusivity where 
you're you're a you're a person of this party. You can't be American. You can't be, or you're Jewish and you shouldn't be Jewish, or Greek and you shouldn't be Greek. And our fathers who believed hundred with a hundred percent of their bodies and souls and put their lives on the line to prove it in the wars right. Right. that uh, that there was no difference that you could be. 100% American and 100% of your ethnic marker. That, I think they, that that's I think right. We let them, I think we let them down. I think we, and now I think we have to uh, uh, let a younger generation know that you can be a Republican and 100% American and not contemptible to somebody who is in your dorm uh, and is a Democrat. And is also a hundred percent American, but as soon as those people start thinking that the country itself is contemptible, uh, but when when the president of the United States goes on and on to equate uh, contemptibility with uh, membership in a political party like MAGA and hysteria, MAGA hysteria. Uh, well, I, that's I right. He. What? Yes, yes, and uh, but I mean, but uh, look at the way that uh, it, it's it's contemptible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now that I've been <laughs> yelling yeah. at other people for saying it, I think that that sort of thing is beneath the office. But I also think yeah. that the way that Donald Trump uh, goes and attacks the family members by name of judges oh, judge? and, and huh. other, I mean, you know. I think that it's a reasonable thing to raise as a question about whether or not uh, these people have bias. But when you start telling a a national crowd, a televised national crowd, uh, that bad things about the family members of public officials, something bad could easily happen. And I I just find it... Something we've gone off the rails here, and it's important to begin by recognizing that, and then trying to to say which kind of core values we need to reestablish to get back on the rails, rather than have all this toxic waste flowing into our streams. Stability is a important thing, and I I hope we can someday come to grips with uh, at least talking about it. Talking about civility where we don't talk about uh, people shaking their ass and instead talk about what they what the virtues or what the virtues are they, that they're seeking. John, maybe uh, someday Jeff, we'll do you're that. Yo- Jeff, you're younger than <laughs> us. Do, do you? <laughs> uh, I, I, you're not a mere ute. I know that, but he knows you, what shake your ass is. You, but, yeah. you, uh, and I know you constantly shake your ass, but do, right. I mean, do, <laughs> you and your friend, when you and your friends, you and your wife, when you all talk about this, do you share the same sense of concern? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I about mean, the Republic. Yeah. Just about just people in general being civil anywhere we go doing anything, you know, just, it feels like it's, it's a lost art and it's not a part of culture anymore. And it's, it's uh, unnerving to say, what do you think has caused it? Uh, I mean, I think it's the, the, 
idea that people have an opinion and therefore that opinion is important, you know, that all opinions are important because everything is on social media and when it gets liked or finds other people who have similar, you know, views or what have you. I think we just have got lost the ability to not have our opinion really mean as much as it should. I mean, or, or be as valid or as useful as that other opinion, you know, I don't know. I think people feel like if they have an opinion about you, even if it's mean or negative, they have the right to share it and or the, the obligation to share it for some reason. And even in person, you know, I feel like people are, are less uh, polite. So I don't know. I think that's right. I, I think that that's right. And I think, um, the fragmentation of the media has made, uh, things worse. We, mm-hmm. uh, everybody wants to see their own opinion confirmed. So we tune in to, uh, podcasts and we tune into cable channels and all the rest to see our, our views reinforced rather than contested. What I think is really troubling is that our education systems ought to be pushing back against that. That's a place where we ought to value free speech and the fact that free speech has declined on college campuses. Uh, it, it has been a, a particular concern to me. Charles Lipson, that's why you are a teacher. <laughs> Above all yes. things, a teacher. And mm-hmm. I want to thank you once again for being here on the Chicago Way with Jeff Carlin and I and trying to put this into some sort of context. Brandon Johnson and Donald Trump, the two big mouths who maybe expect uh, to be treated differently than they treat others. I don't know. I don't know if that'll happen. Thanks for joining us, sir. Thanks again. It's my pleasure. I always enjoy getting together with you, John, and I'm glad you're back in the saddle, my friend. Well, Thanks to you and people like you, uh, I can climb up out of this wheelchair and grab that shillelagh and swing it occasionally. <laughs> now that I have a shillelagh, I'm the, I'm the envy of Jeff Carlin. He Excellent. saw the shillelagh and he's like, oh man, how did you get a real shillelagh? My brother. Well, Nick, I want to see you back. Uh, I want to see you back uh, dancing uh, on the dance floor. Good to talk to both of you. All right, it's buddy. always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Charles. Thank you, Charles. For Charles Lipson, professor emeritus, University of Chicago, great thinker, writer, for many, many publications, Real Clear Politics, American Greatness, on and on. And for Jeff Carlin, executive producer, WGN Radio, master of pies, friend to cats, And for me, John Cass, executive producer, I'm sorry, getting my titles uh, confused. John Cass, executive editor of johncassnews.com, your favorite site for Midwestern common sense. And join us again next week, won't you, for another edition of the Chicago Way podcast on WGN+. Plus.